Dear Brian, it's 2021, but somehow the new year hasn't yet begun. 2020 continues to rage on, although with some changes. We are still floating in that sort of purgatory the virus has created for us. We can't turn that page from the old to the new until the new isn't the same as the old anymore. And that time will come. At some point, we will get to celebrate a new year, a new era, a new life when our tired and lonely indoor lives return to face-to-face meetings, coffees, and sitting shoulder-to-shoulder with friends and strangers in darkened theaters. It will happen. The new year will begin. Different and better than the old. But different and better only if we refuse to forget the ways in which things must change. I'm talking about the eradication of the virus that's in us, around us, and between us. The one for which a vaccine is currently rolling out, and the one for which a vaccine does not yet exist. The one against which we use protest to end and pray that politicians will do their part. That virus is much more elusive, but just as important, if not more so, to obliterate. We will turn that calendar eventually. 2021 may only last three months, but what a three months it will be, and what a joy the New Year's celebration will be for us all. Until then, let us continue to bake bread, binge the final hidden corners remaining on the streaming services, and do the work in preparation for the new times. Because the new times are coming, and they will be joyous. Love, Brian. My name is Brian James Polak, a playwright whose favorite thing to do besides write plays is to talk to other playwrights about writing plays. This month I had the great luxury of talking with Jen Silverman, somebody whose work I have admired for a very long time. Now, I may complain about Zoom a lot, but I do have to admit it has made it so much easier for me to connect with playwrights who don't live anywhere near me. Don't get me wrong, I can't wait for the time to come when I can return to -to face-to-face conversations. It's really such a struggle for me to feel connected through the computer screen, but hopefully you can't really tell. Hey, while you're listening today, please go rate and review the subtext and subscribe so future episodes may automatically be zapped into your devices. If you are the social media type, you can follow us on the Twitters at Subtext Podcast. Oh, and something else. We are working on a very cool project with a lot of help from the Playwright Center in Minneapolis. The playwright and actor Heather Raffo is creating this fascinating new work, and we are following her process for the next few months, hoping to share a very different episode of the subtext centering this new work. So keep your ears out for that in June or July. Onward to this episode. Jen Silverman 
is an American playwright, TV writer, and novelist. She is the author of many plays, including Collective Rage, A Play in Five Bettys, The Moors, Phoebe in Winter, Witch, and others. She is also the author of The Island Dwellers, an interlinked story collection, and the recently released novel We Play Ourselves, which we do spend some time discussing. This conversation was recorded over Zoom in February of 2021, and by the way, I had a bad case of the sniffles during this interview, and I didn't even know it until I listened back to it, so I'm really sorry you have to listen to that. Anyway, this is me talking to Jen Silverman. thing is talking about myself and I'm also terrified of podcasts so that's probably why it hasn't happened until now right well and now you're in this you're in this place where that's this is what you have to do right because you've got to you got to move books (laughs) it's so crazy to me well I was gonna say it is so crazy to me to be asking anyone to be interested in a book in the middle of not even a pandemic, although a pandemic would be enough, but everything else that's happening on top of the pandemic, I'm like, part of me is like, how am I supposed to be asking people to care about my book? And and then, so that's very real. But then also the way that I think I have survived this year has been reading other people's books and just being so, um, I don't know, grateful. Like David Ajmade, Lot Six, like I was so grateful for the chance to just be alone with that book. So I, I think, I am balancing in my mind both like immense gratitude for books and what they can do, and also this sense of like, who am I to talk about a book right now? This is crazy, you know. Right, right. But this, I yeah, I think you're right though. It's like the ultimate time to actually care more about books since it's the only thing we can safely do right. is be alone in a room with with a book. It has this process of um, promoting the book and talking to people about it, and has it been. I don't know, um, challenging or different for you than, than like when you've got a play premiering or something? Yeah, it feels, it feels really different to me because when there's a play, I don't know, like a play is such a collective endeavor, which is not to say that a book isn't, but differently. So like in any audience that walks into a play, it's seeing the work immediately seeing the work of the director and the actors and the designer, you know, and the dramaturg and the stage manager. I mean, even if an audience doesn't know to list all those people, at least they know like, well, I'm here to see this actor. Like I love this director. So any process of talking about a play before it opens is the process of sort of celebrating the collective or like discussing the collective's choices. Whereas with a book, all of the work that goes into it is behind the scenes work. And so people, think about an author as sort of the soul. And I guess an author in a way is like the front face of a book. Nobody reads a book and goes like, oh God, the editor's so good. Unless, of course, but they have to be for a book to be that, to to work, you know? Um, But so, yeah, what makes it feel so different is that I feel like, I don't know, uh, very, I don't know if exposed is the word, Mm. but like, I'm generally somebody who does not like to be in front of a crowd. And so this feels like it is asking me to practice being uncomfortable in ways that are probably good for me. Yeah. The protagonist of your book actually uh, expresses that same, that same feeling wanting to bring somebody to parties who is (laughs) right. The one they can just follow and watch be uh, conversational and, and, and then just sit back. 
uh, I felt that I felt that in a big way. I felt a lot of things just in the first few pages of your book because, um, you know, I'm a playwright and your protagonist is a playwright. I am from New Hampshire and your protagonist is from New Hampshire. And I lived in LA for many years in that path. I mean, this is the very beginning of your book, the path from from LAX to the East side is so familiar. And I, I moved, I moved in 2017 to Chicago, but I lived in LA for basically 10 years. So, you know, over a long period of time, you drive back and forth to LAX many, many times. And, and so just the description of getting like, wait, like finding the protagonist, finding their friend waiting for them in the van, getting out of the airport, getting on the 105, heading on the 110. And I was just like, I'm so back there. <laughs> and I lived my last, my last year and a half or two years of living in LA, I live right off Fountain Ave. Oh. And so like your central, like all of these things about your character are just like hitting me really close to home. I love that. Well, I'm actually then I'm going to start telling people that the book is secretly about you. Yeah. That yeah. Like yeah. And from what I'm when I'm reading, you're getting a lot of people wondering, where are they in the book? Or do they know this person that you've based this this character on? But as I was reading it, I just started to think, um, you know, Tara Jean, who is sort of like the antagonist to your protagonist is is somebody that we all have, you know, <laughs> and it doesn't need to be a specific person because there are sometimes uh, many people in our lives as, as playwrights who we look at and, uh, and just, and, and just sort of like, I don't know, yearn to have what they have or yearn to be seen the way they're seen or, or float across a room the way they can float across a room. So I just found it so unbelievably relatable. Thank you. And, and I don't ever read books. I don't ever read books. And, and it was really, it was really uh, COVID times has changed that because I would like when I've got time to read something, I'm reading plays, right? And I'm just so in plays. And, and in COVID times, I was like, I gotta read, I gotta read more books. So I started to, I started to read more books. And uh, when I got your book, I was in the midst of reading. Uh, and I don't know why I decided to do this. But I'm reading Ulysses by James Joyce. Whoa. And, and it is like, for somebody who's not like a natural reader, holy shit, it is a hard, <laughs> hard book to read. And so getting your book was like a huge like breath of fresh air. And I'm like, oh, a narrative I could follow. <laughs> this is so... My book is definitely not Ulysses. <laughs> it is so not Ulysses. And, and, and it is not Ulysses in all of the best possible ways. Can you talk about when you first started to think as a young person, maybe writing is something I want to do or something I can do? Weird, maybe, or I don't know if it's weird, but I, it was always for me the only thing I wanted to do. I don't remember ever having any doubt. Um, and what changed for me as I grew older over time was the idea of what writing could be or the many different ways in which you could do it. But I think some of that was um, from a very early age, I grew up moving from country to country. Um, my, for, my dad is a scientist, as is my mom, but my dad's work in different labs was sort of bringing us across the world. And so like, I think I was 15 months old and we moved to Tokyo and then from Tokyo, we moved to Paris. And, you know, we were living in a lot of cities. Um, 
And so I think books were a constant in my house. Like my parents are huge readers um, and, and very sort of, they have a wide range as readers, even though they're scientists, they read fiction, they read nonfiction, they'll sort of read anything. And so I think it, maybe as a kid, I don't remember this exactly, but my guess is that my thought was like, oh, you can be a science person or you can write books. And it was very clear to me that books were the thing. And so that was always just a given. And then I think in college, um, no, I know in college, I took my first playwriting class, like freshman year at Brown. And I was like, oh wait, this is even a thing you can do. Like I hadn't, I didn't grow up going to theater. I didn't know anything about theater. It, and it blew my mind. It felt like a weird, magical world that I had discovered that nobody else knew about. It was like my secret, you know, that you could like go into a theater and people would perform something in front of you. Like it all <laughs> blew my 18 year old mind. <laughs> so how were you, how were you just, what were you reading when, when you were a kid? We read really weird things. Um, my parents just sort of had everything around and, and felt in a way that I'm like actually really impressed by now that like the things that you were too young to understand, you just probably wouldn't understand. So there wasn't any sense of you can't read this. Like I read Lolita when I was like 10 or 11, I think, and didn't understand most of it. But my parents mm -hmm. never took it away from me when they saw me reading it. They were like, oh, okay, she's reading Lolita. Like, do you have any questions now? Moving on. Um, we read, like my parents also, when we would move to different countries, they would like, my mom, I think would get the national epics. So we read like the Kalevala when we were living in Finland. I say we, cause like the whole family would like read this book, you know? Um, so they would feed books to you? The national epic, they would totally be like, hey, we got the Kalevala. <laughs> uh, but, but there were just always books around. I mean, when I go to my parents' house, I was about to say now, but in non-pandemic times, when I go to my parents' house, um, every room is like, most of the walls are bookshelves, you know? So there were just constantly books, stacks of books. Um, and I would just sort of read whatever I could get my hands on. Do you remember when you first started to write words of your own? I mean, I think like three or four or five I, words is really a generous description, but I, I have notebooks. I was going through like some boxes a couple of years ago to get rid of stuff. And I found these notebooks um, from when I was like a little kid where I was like trying to write stories. Uh, those need to be burned, but, um, but it was, yeah, I, I think I really don't remember any moment of not knowing that I wanted to write. I just remember a lot of moments of discovering what writing actually could be, you know, which I, and, and had that constantly sort of expanding the idea of what it would be to be a writer. When you were looking back at all this stuff that you found, this old stuff, when you were, when you were really little, did you remember any of it? Did you remember? Oh, I remember writing the story. Most of it I didn't remember. Um, but there were a set of notebooks from, I don't know how old I would have been. I mean, six, seven, eight. When I was, we were living in Paris and we were living in, where did we go from there? I think we were in Italy for a little bit. Um, and I remembered like the, the cover of the note, like the worn cover of the notebook, the look of the notebook. I remembered being excited to have the notebook, but I didn't remember any of the things I wrote in. <laughs> what were you writing about? It was, it's all too embarrassing to think about really, but um, there was a lot of just like describing, you know, what was, where we were, what something was. There were a lot of drawings, like mostly there were entire sets 
of pages that were from drawing um, and then writing captions. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, I was like really, I mean, I still am really in love with notebooks, but it, it began very early, I guess. Do you write in notebooks now? Do you start with like notes or do you journal? I, I'm a big believer in note. I mean, I'm at my desk right now. There's like three separate different notebooks that are within arm's reach. <laughs> um, I have notebooks that are project specific. I have notebooks that are um, like about a bit of a blank slate off which you can sort of bounce a thought or an idea or an image. Um, I have notebooks. <laughs> End of sentence, I have notebooks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've never been a big notebook user. Like when I start to write something new, I'll, I'll type notes to myself on my phone or I'll go to my computer and I'll just, I'll keep a document with, and I'll just blather away with notes. But I've, over the past few years, I've started to take a notebook with me on like a trip. If I'm out, if I'm leaving my sort of like normal comfort zone of home and my usual routine, I'll bring a, a notebook with me. Uh, particularly if I'm traveling outside the country and I'll write notes of the day uh, because my memory is, is not good. I don't have a good episode, episodic memory. I remember how I felt very strongly, but I don't remember events very well. So I'll essentially write the events of every single day. Uh, and, and it sometimes will just be a list of these things, but I found it incredibly helpful. Uh, because I'll be able to tie, the, I'll be able to cre remember the entire narrative of a trip because I'll be able to, I'll remember the connective tissue, but I won't remember the events, you know? So that's been really helpful to me, but I don't, I just don't write in notebooks more. And I, and, and people give writers notebooks all the time because I think to people who aren't writers, like that's the, that's part of our process is everybody has these notebooks. So I have a, I have like five of them that are blank on a bookshelf uh, waiting to be used, but I don't travel enough. I have to travel more. Like we've been, we've been trapped for so long. When, so you, when you went to Brown and you took that first playwriting class, was it, was it sort of like a whim? You were just like, ah, oh, I don't know much about this form of writing. I want to give it a shot. It was, t I think I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was totally like, that sounds cool. Um, it was my freshman first semester of freshman year. And I had signed up for, I think, almost entirely English classes with the exception of that playwriting class. Mm -hmm. um, and my advisor, I remember my advisor asking me like, isn't that a lot of English classes? Like that might be too many. And I was like, no, I'm, I, want to, I finally am gonna get to do what I wanna do, which is only ever read. So <laughs> I will be taking these five English classes, but then but yeah, then playwriting seemed like, well, that's something I don't really know anything about and I've never done it and looks cool, like, let's try it. And the, our teacher was, um, her name's Emily O'Dell. She at the time was, I think an MFA candidate and she was Paula Vogel's student. Um, and she was amazing. Like she blew my mind. I didn't know, well, I didn't know anything about theater but I didn't know it could be the kind of theater she was showing to us, which was, absurdist and irreverent and wild it was like Sarah Kane and Carol Churchill and Baklav Havel and like it just blew my mind and we were really lucky because um the consortium grad students 
were, you know, doing new play festival and they had their plays. And so then like, I don't remember what my actual title was title. I mean, I was like a PA basically, but, um, Kiara Hudez was doing a play for new play festival. And I was, I got to like be in the room and like take notes and bring people water. And it was so amazing to watch her work and be like, oh, that is a playwright. Like that is a living embodiment of this magical craft, you know? And did it inspire you to want to be that? I mean, you were writing stories and you were reading novels and this is your first experience with theater. Were you automatically like, oh, I'm theater, I'm a playwright. Or were you just adding it into your sort of like tool belt of writing? I don't think of it, I don't think it was anything so sort of um, studied or analytical. I just felt like I will do anything for this form. This is it, this is everything. You know, not that it was even choosing an allegiance, but that it was like, like a chasm had opened up and I was, I just like threw myself in. <laughs> Yeah, it felt like a little bit like moving to another country and being like, here I am, like. So was it, and this probably isn't in, in either or situation, but are you talking about the experience of process or of process of, of, of bringing pages to the stage that you were witnessing or, or was it the actual writing for you? That's such an interesting question. Um, I think eventually it became both. But I remember where I remember the magic sort of appearing and surprising me was connected to the architecture of the little like black box theater in which we were workshopping stuff. It was McCormick Theater for anybody who knows Brown at all. Um, I was doing, I think I was like an assistant stage manager for one of the New Play Festival shows. Um, and it was, uh, I think it was Emily's show actually. And there was a, I don't even remember all the details, but there was like a puppeteer and then the puppeteer for whatever reason, like dropped out or, or couldn't show up or, you know, and then she asked me if I wanted to be the puppeteer. And I was like, I don't want to go on stage in front of people, I'm scared. But then it turned out that as the puppeteer, I could mostly be behind things. And I could just sort of like, I think I was puppeting, I don't even remember like a tennis ball. It was something where I, I was like on stage, I was, but, but nobody could see me, I was in, the architecture of this theater. And then I was doing all this other SM stuff. So I would get to the theater early and I would be alone in this space. And it felt to me, I'm not a religious person, but it felt to me like being in church um, in a way that was visceral and physical and had nothing to do with choosing a career. Like it, it could the word career or like any idea of it as being a professional thing was completely unknown to me. But I thought like, I wanna feel like this always. I want this, you know? And then from that, of course, you know, more classes and eventually I was really lucky. I got to study also with Paula um, and with other people. Uh, and, and I became, I think that sense of magic expanded itself to include not just the space and the sacredness of the space, but imagining the space on the page, writing for the space, writing for the people who would fill the space. Um, all of that became touched with magic, you know? Was there something about the collaborative nature of it? Was it about being with people? I think in large part, there was a real, like the immediate intimacy of a chosen community that has come together to create something. I mean, that 
I had never experienced that before. I didn't have another template for what that could feel like. So I think that felt to me very um, sort of immediately powerful. But there was also something that it's hard for me to describe because it's hard to put my finger on, but it was something about being alone even before an audience or collaborators would show up, being alone in the space of a theater and feeling like it was um, a portal or a space of immense possibility that, that you were, I was so close to, um, I don't know, the other side of something, something really big and much larger than the bodies that would then be in that space. This, I mean, this sounds like, I don't know how it sounds, it'd be crazy, but but I remember that feeling so strongly. Yeah, and I think, and I, I mean, I'm nodding this whole, you, uh, nobody will be able to tell, but I'm nodding because I, because there is something unnameable about, about that feeling. And you understand, you understand it if you understand it, right? Like, uh, and it's pro it's one of those aspects of, of what playwrights do and what theater makers do that civilians will never understand. Like, I think it's what bonds us from a deep emotional level to, to the art form. And I think it's, I think it's the kind of thing that we can't, we from the inside can't even put words to it. So it's hard for anybody else to, uh, to, to grasp it. I think, you know, I think that some of that is true. And what has interested me across this year in which there is no theater, in which like I'm thinking a lot about everything that we're talking about because I'm missing it and I'm wondering, do we get it back? How do we get it back? When do we get it back? Why does Zoom theater not feel to me at all like the same? I mean, obviously it isn't the same thing, but why does it not tap into that same, um, I don't know, hunger or, or like spiritual fulfillment that in-person theater does. Like I've been asking myself all these questions and what I find myself thinking about is that the things that I talk about or that we're talking about when we think about theater, this sort of um, sense of, of magic, of possibility of, of a purpose or a meaning that is larger than you are. Like this is all stuff that I hear friends of mine talk about who are deeply religious and who practice a particular religion in a really engaged and rigorous way. Um, and also doctors, like I have a group of friends who are doctors and, and I know that they bring a similar, um, I don't know, sense of reverence and is reverence the right word? Uh, maybe, perspective anyway, um, to their particular practices. And it's, I think what feels to me universal in a way, even though theater is such a niche community, we're so, we have our like jargon and our inside language and our inside references and we are such a bubble um is all of us we just want to be lifted up by something bigger and and we want a sense of possibility and magic and so for me it was theater but you know one of my friends like left college and, and joined an abbey became a nun you know like for her it was something else um, mm -hmm. but i don't find those impulses actually to be that different in the end did you find so so you you were you were having and I don't mean to put this word in your mouth but you were having like these epiphanies when you were first discovering theater and what it's like to be in the room and and um, you know the possibilities of of all of that so you were having these feelings which inspired you to to want to work in this form once you started to work in it and write plays and then have plays produced. Did did the 
resulting feeling matched what you um what what first hooked you you know what i mean and i do know what you mean and this is something i think about especially as i've been writing the book i've really thought about it because the answer in a way is that is yes to a point and then at a certain point i knew too much about um about that there was an industry behind the art artistic practice, do you know what I mean? And how the industry worked and the, and the sort of economic models by which American theater is, um, is so often weakened, you know? And the more that I started to know, the more, the more it became complicated, you know? And, and it isn't that the love weakened, but rather that the, um, the complexity grew and then and then you become sort of like any artist working in a field where you are trying to like navigate the landmines without compromising on the vision. And, and that's, that's tough. It's really tough, you know? And, and I think when I talk to students now or when I work with students and I see that sort of unalloyed, um, like the pure love for the craft that doesn't have the knowledge built in, I really envy them. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, is it, is it, is it inescapable to learn the darker truths of the industry? The, you know, like, is it possible to, 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 I don't know, build a bubble for yourself as a theater maker and not learn about, be exposed to the, the real challenges of, of the sausage making of it all? I hoped for a long time that it was, but I actually, at this point, I don't think that it is because I think that at, how do I say it? Like any artist who is, who at a certain point has to advocate for their work and has to advocate it for it to be made in a certain way and not a certain other way, or has to advocate for their collaborators um, to be paid fairly or to be paid at all, or to be hired, or to be given a chance. I mean, I think, at a certain point to be in a bubble is to sort of absolve yourself of responsibility for how theater is made and the way that the theater makers are treated. Um, and I think that we can't do that. I think that to be a good collaborator ultimately relies on how informed you are and how, um, I don't know how willing or able you are to, to, to use your understanding, you know, to, to advocate for everyone, but, but it is, it becomes a different thing at that prospect, right? Like there's one, one thing is writing um, a piece of work and feeling, you know, this connection to uh, the craft and to an audience that you're imagining and to like writing a piece as an invitation to an audience. And then the other side of it, when it comes down to actually making something is about rolling up your sleeves and saying like, okay, well, what, you know, what, what are the expectations? Um, around the way that this institution wants to operate and what are the ways in which that does not align with my value system. Yeah, and I think as I'm, as I'm listening to you, as I was asking the question in the first place, I was realizing that part of the reason why American, the American theater, in, in, in all caps, is so problematic is because I think for so long people did for lack of a better term, keep their heads buried in the sand and and focused on their themselves and their work. 
not realizing that their friends and colleagues were uh, having a lot of trouble. And, and I think that we're in the midst of this reckoning right now. You know, people have been saying it for years and years and years that there's problems that, that the American theater um, is sexist and racist and, and uh, it's, I think, I think for so long people have had a hard time hearing it because I love theater and theater feels so good. And to find out that this thing that I love is also deeply troubled, like you don't want to believe that, right? Well, that's the thing that for me was so uh, complicated about finding myself in Los Angeles and writing this book, which was that in a way it came out of a love letter to the theater. I missed the theater. I wanted to be in the theater. I felt very strongly my geographic and also in my life at that particular time, separation from the theater, but also I was writing about, um, it was a love letter that, that, that was pretty, that to me held the complexity of, of the ways in which theater fails people, you know? Um, that down, I mean, in that very specific instance in the book, some of what the protagonist is experiencing is that the trauma of women is suddenly marketable. And so people want to consume material in which women are writing about their trauma, but, but it, people are far less interested in what women think and what their political analysis is. And like, where are they coming from? You, you know what I mean? And, and so, and there's a way in which theater, um, I think is guilty of wanting to consume trauma. Um, but not perhaps providing much care or thought for the people whose trauma it is, you know? Not address the trauma, experience the trauma, but not address the trauma. Yeah. And also, but then of course, like, and this is the other side of it that like, that the book is also grappling with the character, the Tara Jane Slater character who's writing all these plays about her trauma um, and, and who is sort of soaring to the success that the protagonist is desperately longing after she can't help, Tara Jean can't help that there is a machine that wants to consume what she's making. Like she is writing what she needs to write and there should be space for her to do that. And it is a new thing that there is space for her to do that. Um, but also she is, the question I think in a way is like, is she being exploited or is she exploiting a system that exists um, to her benefit currently? Like it just becomes really complicated when we talk about a capitalist system that commodifies identity experience, um, the deeply personal stories that, that people tell in their craft, you know? And, and I think in America where everything is commodity, it is, I think a particularly complicated set of thoughts for me to parse. Have you felt that way yourself as a playwright? Which way specifically? Um, that you are, that your work is being commodified? I have tried to very carefully make choices that I don't work with places where I feel like I'm being commodified or where I feel like it isn't the right conversation around the thing that I want to make. But I've definitely experienced over the years or had conversations um, where it was clear that there was a particular box into which I would fit. And the question is, was I willing to get in the box or not? You know. Um, but I think part of advocating for yourself as an artist, which 
is so hard to do. And I feel like I'm only beginning to learn how to do it. But part of the advocacy is like, are we actually talking about the same thing? Are we talking about it? Not even in the same way, but in a way where we are all coming from, um, from a similar set of values. Are we, are we making it? Do we, are we agreed on why we're making it, you know, as opposed to, uh, all the other ways that the sausage can get made, I guess. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of playwrights, and I don't know if this speaks to your experience at all, but for a lot of playwrights, you know, get achieving something in this industry or, you know, getting commissions in some productions, these things can be really fleeting. And so it, it, it puts you in a position to not ever be able to say no. So you feel like, I'm saying you, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about yeah, the, yeah. the general you. It's hard to say no to things because you're like, oh, if I say no to this, this might be, there might not be a next thing. So the system kind of sets it up where um, there are so few opportunities. You've got to say yes to everything that comes your way. So it makes it harder to advocate for yourself, to stand up for yourself and say, to say no, because what is, is that an end, you know, right. or is it the beginning of an end? Right, that is absolutely true. And I think for that exact reason, I've become such a strong advocate of writers working across forms. Um, writing for TV, writing a book, writing a movie. I think that if you are working in multiple forms, if you are excited by multiple forms, then you're in a better position to say no to what doesn't jive with you. Do you know what I mean? Like whether it is, um, a situation like the one you were describing where you're like, oh, this isn't quite, we're not quite on the same page, but what if I turn it down, you know, or something where you're like, like I've had situations in the past couple of years where I've been sent stuff and I've been like, you know what, I'm actually not the best writer for this. I can let, tell you five other people who actually like, this is their wheelhouse, this is what they do. And it's much easier um, and better for the project and better for sort of for me, for everybody. To, to pair the right artists with the right work, as opposed to feeling like, well, I, sh I need to sh turn into the kind of writer who would be able to do this because otherwise, how am I paying my rent, you know? So I feel like I have, when I talk to students, I say the thing that I always wish had been said to me, which is like diversify your practice, you know, teach yourself the tools, learn the tools to work in multiple media because then you will be in control and much in more control i should say nobody's ever in control of anything in the arts but you will be in more control of the artistic choices you make um and, and the ways in which you can do those things you know you talked about earlier about this this feeling you have about working in theater and what inspired you to want to work in it in the first place and it doesn't pay particularly well and it's not necessarily the most consistent thing. So there's a draw to work in theater. I'm sorry to work in television because television pays really well. Has it been challenging for you to sort of keep that connection to theater while also working in the film television world? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, Yes and no. I think it's also right as I'm like trying to answer this question, I'm thinking about um, how this past year has completely derailed any sense that I have of being connected to anything. So I'm trying to answer from a place of like what, how I would have answered it if all, if the world is still open and theater is happening and I, you know. Uh, well, how about, so let's frame it this way. In 2018, you started to write this 
book, right? Yeah. So in 2018, you were writing a love letter to theater. Is that because you were feeling like a longing for it or you were missing it or like you were feeling a pull in another direction? Oh, 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 yeah, yes. That, I think that is very true. Um, I had just moved to LA to work on Tales and, and I think I had a lot of questions um, yeah, about balancing TV and film and theater, but but not even about balancing them, but I think also questions about how much space there would be in the States to make the kind of theater that I wanted to make. Um, and again, it's, I mean, everything, it feels right now like we are in a major shift and things are changing. So I don't know what it's gonna be like at the other side of this, but for a long time, I felt, um, the complications and pressures of working within a theatrical tradition that um, largely felt that naturalistic theater could be trusted as an economic um, economic bet. And, and I say this without any sort of, like there are so many naturalistic plays that I love. I love to read them, I love to watch them. Um, so I'm not even talking about the art of it all, but that institutionally institutions were more willing to take risk on plays that were sort of living room naturalism and doing any work that was not that was very complicated and required a lot of steps with most theaters, um, a lot of reassurance, a lot of like endless workshops and readings in order to be like, this probably will not be the thing that ends your theater, but it might be, you know, like, like there was just a lot. So I had questions about like, I don't wanna do work that I don't wanna do, particularly not in the arts, my God. But, um, but is there enough space to do the work that I do want to do? And I, in 2018, I was like, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, and then I went to LA, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and then, you know, and, and coming out of that, like, I'm trying to remember because time is super me right now. I think it was the following summer. Is that right? That I did Witch at the Geffen, um, which was a play that I had written in, 2016 or 2017. I mean, I had been working on it for years. Um, I had done it at Writers Theater in Chicago, had worked on it more, had sort of deconstructed it, put it back together. Like it was a sort of a prep play that I just kept coming back to. And there was something I remember about doing it a year after. Um, my timeline might be off. It's time is a soup for me right now. But but I remember sitting down to do that play in LA and and being like, oh, wow, I'm in a theater. You know, like we're about to make something. Like this is, this is, I, I, this didn't feel like a guarantee to me, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel now with regards to your career? Obviously we are in COVID times, so theaters are closed. There is no such thing as theater. Do you feel, you know, coming out of this that you're going to be more grounded in another writing form than than theater or are you are you sort of like ready to come back i desperately want to be in a theater i want to make theater work i want to i mean i think some of what i am learning is how much balance is healthy for me balance between media between projects um that doing a play and then writing a book sort of feels I don't know, healthy grounding. Um, it asks me to continue to be curious as opposed to sort of falling into 
what feels comfortable. Um, so I, I think I am learning what that balance looks like and I don't yet know, but, but I am gravitating more and more toward the balance of like, okay, well, I'll do this thing and then I'll pivot to the next thing. And, and after I've gone down the road a little bit, I'll, I'll come back to this other craft. Um, but all of that being said, I mean, I have dreams about being in a theater every night. So like, I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I, I'm longing for it. Yeah. You know, you, you, you beautifully articulated how the, those first feelings you experienced when you were in the room with Kiara's play and you were backstage um, puppeteering. Were there moments like that that you can, that you can recall uh, in relationship to things you started to write early on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like moments of magic, moments. Yeah. Um, I mean, early on, just the fact of doing it, it all felt magical in a real There wasn't, and I was still, I mean, I think we're always still developing our crafts, but at that point, I, you know, I didn't, there was so much I didn't know and didn't understand that to be gathering understanding of anything felt like everything, you know, but I remember the specific moments of magic, I think for me came later. I remember when we were doing Collective Rage at MCC um, and there was, it was in the, it was one of the last shows that happened at the Lortel downtown, you know, the, on um, Christopher Street, right? Or no, not Christopher, but you know, downtown. Um, so in that space, there's like a balcony that's up above the audience. There's curtains around it. Like a lot of stuff gets stored there. The audience, nobody knows you're up there if you're up there. And I would hide in the balcony every night and sort of in early previews, watch the show and take notes. And then sometimes watch the audience and take notes. And um, I have these memories of being up there and just in specific moments where everything that we had been trying to calibrate just like came together tonally, or there were some tricky sort of um, scenic and timing elements. And when those came together, just these feelings of complete convergence and the audience reacting in the way that we wanted them to react and, and just being tucked in this tiny little balcony, completely invisible. I like could almost just have been a fly on the wall. And I was watching pieces of the universe come together that felt amazing to me. Um, and that was sort of the magic coming back, you know, Particularly, I mean, Collective Rage was a play that when it first happened, it, I should say, I don't, it's called a Collective Rage and Collective Rage, a play in five Bettys. And then there's like three more sentences of the title. Um, and it's about five queer women. It was, it's an absurdist play. Um, all of the women are named Betty. Anyway, we use the word pussy. Uh, when I first wrote the play and when it got its first sort of like readings and production, that was, I mean, before the pussy hat, they, you know, before the Women's March, before all of that, it was before that word was like kind of in the mainstream in the way that it is now to some degree. And people were so horrified. Um, not everybody, of course, but we, there were a lot of like, there was backlash and there was a lot of, you know, this play is obscene and profane and like what are what is it what is even what are you even doing and why are they all named Betty why are they talking about their pussies why are they queer they're not queer in this way or that like there was just a real um it hit a lot of buttons I think in the American theater establishment interestingly it happened in London and like the response was entirely different but so when we were about to do it at MCC I was very much aware uh that 
you know, it, it was a bit of a minefield elsewhere in the US and I was feeling a lot of, um, I don't know, pressure is a word that is true, but also I wanna say concern almost for the theater. I was like, you took a risk on me and I really hope that I am not about to like bring a lot of trouble to your door. <laughs> and all of that was on my mind up until we were in previews. And then I, I'm sort of like, this is a very long-winded way of saying, when I was in that balcony and watching what we were actually making and watching the audiences who particularly in early previews were like a lot of young people, a lot of queer people, you know, the audience for which I had written the player who, to whom I had imagined addressing the play, that the magic of that I think was intensified for me because prior to that I had just felt so much, um, I think anxiety of like, all right, here we go. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I remember having this conversation about the relationship between audiences and plays geographically. I can't remember who I was talking to mentioning London. And I'm wondering if the relationship between the people and the language is different in, in London than it is in, in the United States. Like, do you think that, that the relationship with language is different there and that is part of why the response to your play was different? I think that that's, yes, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, the word pussy is not, it's a nothing word in British English. It's like, they know what it means, but nobody, to my understanding anyway, like nobody would actually use it. So it doesn't come with all of the associations. I mean, even my mother was like, do you have to use that word? <laughs> and she is not, you know, a particularly uptight person, but her generation, that is a very loaded word. Um, but I also think that British theater and not to make blanket statements about British theater, but like, it seems to me that they really understand theater as a tradition of provocation and they're not afraid of being provoked. They're not, um, it doesn't make them uncomfortable. They, they're, they're fine with something being a bit confrontational because they feel equipped to rise to the challenge of the confrontation. And I think, again, blanket generalizations, but American audiences feel entitled to comfort because it's such in their minds, because again, we're such a capitalistic society, it's a really transactional thing. It's like, well, I paid for this ticket. So I, I didn't pay to feel confronted for the next you know, 90 minutes. Um, and again, I think there are theaters, there are many theaters in the US, some of my favorite theaters that really cultivate a relationship with the audience where they say, you are gonna come here to go on a ride and the audience that flocks to that particular theater is ready for the ride. But I think, that requires a very deliberate um, approach of how to deal with your audience because that doesn't come baked into our culture. And the play, I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler because I don't, the play's not really <laughs> built to have spoilers, but um, the final scene of the play is Betty Two's Pussy comes out on stage um, and she like plays a ballad on a guitar uh, and she sings a song about being a pussy. And <laughs> I think for the people, there were certain places where for the people who lasted that long, that was the last straw. But, <laughs> but then I was like, you know, applause if you lasted that long, like hallelujah, bless you. Uh, but I remember at MCC, in previews, we all started to notice that there was one point at which if anybody was gonna walk out, that was where they walked out. It's sort of like without fail, like clockwork, the, you know, there was usually one or two people who would walk out and sometimes more during this particular part, but it was, um, it's a scene, I mean, for people who don't know the play, it's a scene where one of the Bettys is, is recounting um, 
watching all of these David Attenborough videos about lions and she starts to think about like being a lion who has a cock and like what you do with a cock as opposed to like what you're expected to do with a pussy and it and people just like if they were okay with the pussy the minute that cock was mentioned they were gone like that was it <laughs> it was like pushed one step far over the line and every night it was out from the balcony I would just like wait for that moment and then see how many people walked out <laughs> were you aware of the sort of like the way it would be perceived as provocative? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Like, yes, because I think it would be really naive to write a play about queer women, sort of for queer women, using words like pussy and the occasional cock, and then be surprised when, when it gets a reaction. Like, I wasn't that naive, but I was surprised, I was genuinely surprised, particularly early on, at the depth of the reaction um, and sort of at the depth, when people were horrified, they were like personally offended in a way that I couldn't wrap my mind around. Um, and it was a sense of like, how dare she? How dare she say these things? How dare she put them on stage? Perhaps a little bit, how dare she make a play about this at all? It's like, we're tolerant, but we don't wanna talk about it, you know? <laughs> Um, but I also think, I don't know that I, I've never had a problem with people walking out. Like, I think that that's actually not a bad thing to do. If you don't want to be somewhere, why stay? Um, I don't particularly want to torture you. You know what I mean? Like, if you hate one of my plays, like, please go down the street, get a drink, have dinner, like, don't stay. So I never felt that upset about people walking out. I always, it was just really curious about what was the thing that was the one step too far? Like, what is the moment which you're like, I can no longer stay in this room? <laughs> As you were coming out of school and you sort of, you know, essentially entering the American theater and, and becoming a playwright and um, sending plays, you know, all of that business of, of being an early career playwright, did you have did you have early champions? Did you have people who um, were particularly helpful to you in in boosting you up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Marcus Gardley was an angel to me. He read the first contract that I ever had. I think it was like a one page contract. It wasn't that complicated from like, I, but I could, I looked at it and I was like, this is Greek. I don't understand anything. And Marcus, who I had met at the Bay Area Playwrights Festival, I think it was, he was so sweet. He was like, let me read it. Let me explain it to you. Um, how can I help? You know, he was such a champion. Molly Smith Metzler, when I first moved to New York, she sat down with me, she had coffee. She like answered a bunch of my questions. She was like, you're going to be okay. I remember her looking me in the eyes and saying, like, you're going to be okay. And we had, you know, what met twice or something like, but I felt, I felt like she was actually predicting my future. I was like, okay, Molly says I'm going to be okay. Like, you know, David Adjme would like, I remember he bought me dinner a bunch of times when I was coming out of grad school and he would like talk to me about art and like, let me ask him a bunch of stupid questions. And he, I would always try to like pay for dinner and he would never let me. But just like there was, I think that there is such a good tradition of playwrights taking care of each other. And, and I, I believe in that tradition. Um, I don't know, it was a, not just a way to strengthen the art, but also maybe to strengthen the spiritual part of it that we are all sort of in lineage with each other. Um, and I try really hard to think about 
ways in which I can champion and advocate for younger playwrights who are coming up now, you know, and sort of how we're all, I think, responsible to each other. Yeah, I, we're all in a continuum. And I think that uh, the more we recognize that, the better we can do, because I think I think we can all do uh, a better job with, you know, lifting others up. Because I think we all need a hand up and a hand and can give a hand down yeah. and out at the same time. You know, yeah. Yeah. I don't think we ever stop needing help. I think Tony Kushner needs somebody to read his first draft and give him notes and <laughs> tell them hard truths. Right. We all, we all need that. I think it's a really beautiful way to think about it. Cause that's right. Like I don't, probably nobody ever feels that they have arrived. I mean, there are people that I look at them and I'm like, you have arrived, but they're probably also looking up and thinking like, well, how, who can help me figure out whatever the next step is. This is the, this is the one subject I tend to ask almost everybody. How do you frame what success is? That is a really good question. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's one that I am learning a lot about, you know, like the answer has changed a lot for me over the years. And I think writing the book, which is so much about success and failure and, and, and somebody struggling with the idea of, of what those things look like that, became a terrain for me to keep asking myself those questions but sort of posing them in different terms. I think at this moment, it feels like being able to make the work that I want to make with the people that I want to make it with in multiple forms is sort of what I'm, what I'm hoping for, what I'm, so where I'm setting my sights, you know, and that's about all you can ask for. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I like that. What is it to you? Can I ask? Am I allowed to ask questions? Yeah, you can ask me whatever you want. A success, success to me is definitely something that has changed over over the years. You know, when I first came out of grad school, it was um, about getting all the commissions and then having the regional productions and the New York off-Broadway debut. Uh, and as the years have started to pass, it's really become more about just not having to worry about bills and rent and all of that, and having the ability to collaborate, sort of like what you just said, with with people I admire and and continue to make art on the regular because it fills me up so much to do that. So yeah. the more I can do that, yeah. the, the more consistently that can happen. I think that's success to me. Yeah. There's, uh, I don't have it on my wall here, but uh, there's a post-it note that for a long time, um, I would sort of have like over, over the desks where I would work. I'll find the quote and send it to you, but it's, um, it's about Idris Shah and the way that he thinks of um, work as sort of not about the place that you arrive, but about, I'm like mangling how he actually says it, but like about the, that work is in of itself a spiritual practice. Um, work is in of itself an arrival. And to think too far ahead of that point, to think about the work becoming something other than you in the moment of making it is to sort of deprive yourself of, do you know what I'm saying? Like, 
Yes, yes. I don't know. I don't know the quote, but I know the feeling. And I think I think that might be the thing that has shifted for me in recent years because this thing is so like the work itself is ephemeral. Uh, the the attention you get from it, like it all can last for a minute and then disappear. So if you're not in it, yeah. right? If you're not in it when it's happening, then why are you in it at all? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's a way in which, um, I don't know, maybe I, I, I feel like we're sort of always, particularly as artists and when we're freelancers, like you're thinking down the road, right? Because your part of you is like, okay, well, Where's the next job coming from and rent and bills and groceries and debt and whatever. So you are constantly thinking like two or three steps ahead of yourself, but at a certain point, you could just live your whole life in a future that hasn't happened, you know, and, and more and more, I mean, particularly right now, I'm trying to just stay in the moment of whatever I'm, of what I'm actually doing you know, and, and be in that moment. And if it's uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable. If it feels great, it feels great. But that it is what is actually real. Whereas like thinking ahead or worrying ahead or planning ahead or hoping ahead, like that, none of that is tangibly real. That quote Jim was talking about is actually from Rachel Pollack talking about Idris Shaw. She sent me a photo of of the post-it note that's above her desk. It reads, Idris Shah speaks of work as the most basic of Sufi doctrines. Work, whether physical, artistic, or spiritual, cannot succeed if the person thinks only of the end result. I like that. Anyway... Thank you so much to the wonderful Jen Silverman. Go find her book titled We Play Ourselves wherever books are sold, such as your local bookstore. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song to the subtext is by International Pen Pal. This month's episode was produced and edited by me. Our associate producer is KJ Jarbo. Thank you, as always, to Rob Weiner-Kent and the team at American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is A Lesson in Swimming by Michael Shutt. Michael is an actor, writer, and director I have known for many years. Several years ago, he suffered a series of strokes, and A Lesson in Swimming is Michael taking us on the journey of experiencing and recovering from these strokes. I listened to the radio play version he recorded this back in 2020, and it's beautiful and it's hilarious, just like Michael himself. You can listen to it at his website, michaelshutt.com. That's Michael spelled the way Michael spelled, and shut is S-H-U-T-T dot com.